welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Dang, man, I, ma- I like nailed that. <laughs> that little <laughs> perfect. That lip syncing. If we were playing right now, I think I would have had it. Uh-huh. Nobody would have been able to tell. I know. <laughs> Dude, I feel like I'm inadequate to to introduce you. I'm going to let you do it. Oh, come on. Mark, uh, do it. Um, uh, my name is Mark Schenker. I am the bass player for uh, Kicks. I am a, uh, I'm a photographer, a traveler, and... Um, I also have uh, worked at times in uh, in the IT world, so I've been a computer guy for I don't know thirty years now, I guess, since before before Ethernet, before the internet. So that's what I did in my regular job when music never paid. <laughs> in a like beginning beginner jujitsu, I'd say. Uh, well, I'm a one stripe blue belt. In uh, oh, and our dang. school is a. You haven't updated your photos in a while. I know I haven't. Well, I did. <laughs> I did put uh, when I got my one stripe from from uh, Coach uh, Coach John Allen Perry. Shout out to my my boy there. He's uh, he's our um, black belt that we we roll with quite a bit. He's he's awesome and he's given me all my. He gave me my blue belt and all my stripes with one stripe when I was a white belt and he's just awesome and and. Uh, he, I just got it. Uh, what uh, maybe uh, a month and a half ago? I just got my first first stripe on my blue belt. So it was it was nice. And it's it's uh, you, you know earning stripes is is hard. You know it's hard work. <laughs> yeah. And so when you get one, it's like you know you get this 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 rush of emotion. It's like man, I actually you know I earned this. You know I actually worked hard for this and busted my fingers up for this and <laughs> you know got somebody's knee in my orbital bone for this. You know so. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I'm a one stripe blue belt, and uh, um, uh, ages ago, before uh, right around when UFC one came out, I was I was doing kung fu then. Really? Yeah, and so I had been taking kung fu for about three years, and um, UFC one came around, and we were like, man, there's going to be like real fights on TV, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. And then you know, none of us knew the guy in the pajamas was going to win, right? <laughs> and so. That made me, and at the same time, I was moving from Maryland to Virginia, and I couldn't find a kung fu school in Virginia. Were you betting so, on Steven Seagal, or I? You know, I I had hoped since I was taking kung fu at the time. I think there was one or two, either kung fu or taekwondo guys that were in the in the the mix mm-hmm. with the Gracies with the with Hoist, and um, I just thought there's no way this guy's going to be. You know, some he's somebody's going to going to head kick him and he's going to go down in those pajamas and it's going to be bad and he just you know dominated it took the world by storm and changed martial arts forever i mean if you if you think about the sonic booms that have happened in martial arts bruce lee was the first one because everybody wanted to be bruce lee in the 70s and then you know hoist gracie was the second one that that really changed the course of martial arts forever i think yeah well i I guess I don't know if I can attest to the two sonic booms, but I can definitely attest to remembering that one. Mm-hmm. You know, because I honestly never watched UFC 1 when it first happened. The only reason I watched it is because someone told me who won and and said, like, oh, he was using, you know, 
I think it's called jujitsu. And I'm like, what the heck is that? <laughs> and so, you know, we ended up, I th- I can't remember how we watched it. I feel like we had to go rent it on like at like Blockbuster or something. Uh-huh. And and watched the VHS and I was just like, what is happening? You uh-huh. know, so I, it didn't sink in for a lot uh-huh. of people at that point, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I remember watching it on uh um we had one of those cable boxes that got everything, you yep. know, one of those blue boxes. And so uh I um I'm sorry to say I didn't actually pay for it, but I did watch it. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> the guilt has been after me the, all these years. You know, you come from such a awesome era because that was like cable. Like when you the cable guy movie was so <laughs> awesome because yes. if you knew a cable guy and you could like pirate cable. Oh yes, oh that, god, yes. that was the time. We used to. I remember when Directv came out. They had um, you could buy Directv card readers. And hook them up to your PC and download code that would decode everything on DirecTV and allow you to buy $175 worth of movies. And then you just reprogram the code and zero it out. <laughs> Re- sorry, reprogram the card and zero it out. So we had all the NFL, all of the, the X-rated stuff, and all you did was reload your card every whenever it ran out. And, and then was, got pissed at people for taking your music. Well, they, <laughs> I, I never got pissed about it. That, you know, that was all, that was all Lars, you know, <laughs> Lars started all that. Not, not me, but, but yeah, you know, it was, uh, there was a, there's always a certain satisfaction of, uh, you know, sticking it to the man now and then, you know oh, what yeah. I mean? <laughs> it makes you feel good, even though it's illegal, but whatever. Well, uh, I'm pumped about good this podcast, man, because I grew up. Like the first time I feel like I was trying to like find an an, an identity mm-hmm. was like I like I told you when when that first you know slippery when wet Bon Jovi album came out and then you know Motley Crue Faster Pussycat and then GNR and Kicks kind of at the same time honestly and then mm-hmm. um, you know Me- Metallica was obviously in there somewhere and it just you know Megadeth got in there but. Last night, uh, we started telling a story, and I'm just like, dude, dude, I'm not going to (laughs) listen. You told everybody else, and I wasn't going to listen. And so before I forget, you were, we were talking about the knock on sign, Uh you know, and, you know, we've had a few people who have emailed in saying, you know, I love the brand, and you guys are awesome and give great content, but I'm not going to support a brand that, uh, a brand that has the sign of the devil for, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for your logo. And so last night, you know, we were just saying that jokingly last night you said, um, do you know where that came from? Mm -hmm. And obviously I put the Dio Mm -hmm. little holy diver kind Mm -hmm. of in the background to Mm -hmm. set the mood. So Mm -hmm. tell us the story of where this came from. Okay. So I've heard it from several different places. One of the um, people that have told me this that I've spoken to directly about it is Eddie Trunk, who has everybody uh, who knows Eddie knows that he was friends with uh, Ronnie James Dio and continues to support charities that were created after his death. And so, uh, so Eddie's a pretty reliable source. And I had also read this in in uh, different articles and whatnot. And um, it it what this really is, it's a um, if, uh, the, so the story goes when Ronnie James Dio was a little boy, his grandmother was this older Italian lady and she would walk him down the street holding his hand 
And if she thought somebody was giving her the evil eye, she would do this back at them to cancel out the hex of the evil eye. So what this is is actually a good sign that, that cancels out evil. So if someone's saying that this is the sign of the devil, I think where that idea came from is Motley Crue's shout at the devil and people were doing this because they were already doing it at rock concerts because Ronnie James Dio had been doing this since his days in Richie Blackmore's Rainbow before he got into Black Sabbath, before he became a solo, uh, solo artist. So this is actually a good thing. And if you feel like someone's giving you the evil eye on the street, which is a hex, this blocks the evil eye from you, <laughs> right? So in a way, it's like in uh, dinner, dinner for Schmucks when they were having uh, the brain force block, <laughs> blocks. <laughs> yes. That blocks yeah. the evil eye. Yeah. So this is not a sign of evil. And so, and it's funny because when I started. So if a deer has that sixth sense and when that buck just does that, <laughs> you got to just go. Right. It blocks it. They can't see you. You become, it's instant invisibility. <laughs> I for, love it. With clothed in, in uh, cloaked in goodness, you know, when you do that. I'm going to so. do that next time. Something just freaking <laughs> pins me in the tree. I'm just going to go. Right. Get, get, you can't see me now. You're all evil is if gone. If we can get that on camera, Caleb, where I do that and something goes like. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, it worked. It worked. That, yeah, but that's that's the story, and that's legit. And uh, there's no, uh, you know, it's it's again, if people don't do their research and they don't actually look up something that they hear about. But like I said, you know, part of that does come from Motley Crue shout at the devil, and all the Motley Crue fans doing this while they're playing that song. That's probably how some evil got attached to it. I'm sure, oh, but. Yeah. Um, but that is not the original thing, and that is not where it came from, and that is not what it means. Someone put a spin on it. How mm -hmm. dare they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, How many times that. in the last day and a half have I just said, nope, nope, stop, don't, don't, <laughs> a lot. like, don't, don't say anything. Like, I know. I feel like you don't want to talk to me. I'm like, hey, John, you know, and you're like, hey, just, no, no, shh, wait, just hold on, just hold on. Because here's what's awesome. <laughs> like, um, I'm, I, it was this age for me where, I was, you know, going into junior high, clicks are starting to develop, mm -hmm. right, as a kid, and you're kind of, you're kind of the athlete, or, you know, or you're kind of, you know, riding dirt bikes and go-karts, or you're the hard rocker, mm -hmm. or like, I don't know if there was total goth then, but just these different identities start to break out, yeah. and when I started, I was... I was a skater first, you know, I was like big into skating and I wanted to like kind of rebel. Cause I love that movie, um, search for animal chin. And I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure the chili peppers were in there as like a cameo towards the back end of that. I can't, I'm not for sure on that, but I love that like punk, you know, that, that punk kind of sound. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I think I'd heard the sex pistols somewhere, but I never had access to that music because my mom was Yanni freaking like just th she liked the Beach Boys mm -hmm. and I remember the first concert I ever went to was a Beach Boys concert mm -hmm. at um Poplar Creek. Uh just I don't know if Poplar Creek was there at some point it changed over. I know they redeveloped it and named it something else, but it was like a west suburb of Chicago. And then uh, got to do a Jimmy Buffett concert 
Um, and yeah, all the like cool stuff, the cool concerts. My mom wasn't into that when I would play, you know, anything hard. Mm -hmm. She was just not into it. So otherwise my mom was always cool. She would have taken me if, if I could have, if it would have been something she liked, she would have mm -hmm. taken me to any concert mm -hmm. at all. But like that music was just out of her thing. So I just really had to get all of my hard rock, heavy metal stuff recorded onto some tapes that I had from uh, this girl that was like down the street from me. Her name was Mary Hooper and her brother was like a hard rocker. Mm -hmm. So he, he, I mean, he looked like, you know, he looked like Tommy Lee or something oh, cool. all the time, <laughs> you know, and he was in high school and like drove like a cutlass or something uh -huh. junky like that, uh -huh. you know, just typical headbanger at high school. Delta 88. Yeah. And then I'm here. I am the, you know, the kid that's a skater kind of doing that BMXing, and then ended up kind of finding sports later in life, but mm -hmm. still having, that whole background of like hanging out with the headbangers. Mm -hmm. So it worked out good for me when I hit high school because I was, I was really, I, I wasn't in one click, you know, I could go to shop class and just hang out with the headbangers and like start welding mm -hmm. or, you know, I could, I could go to PE class or study hall, which then I just left study hall and went back into PE class <laughs> and would just like, get after it you know mm -hmm. in sports but I always wondered like what what would it have been like to be able to go to like see GNR or kicks like during this time because I can see them now mm -hmm. when they're kind of like me mm -hmm. you know at that time I was you know ripping around on crotch rockets you know trying to kill myself somehow on a a road and you know, just doing every dumb thing I could possibly do. And mm -hmm. then now it's like, yeah, I don't do it. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but <I'm, laughs> so people that were on a whole new level of off their rocker, uh -huh. like, what was it like? Well, I, you know, it's, it's funny because before I was in kicks, um, I can just say that I'm, I'm not one of the original members. I'm the only non-original member. Um, and I was friends with the guys in Kicks because I was playing in cover bands around the Maryland, D.C. area. And we opened for Kicks all the time because we, we were pretty, usually had pretty good bands and they liked having good bands warm up for them. So I had gotten to be friends with uh, um, uh, uh, Ronnie, the guitar player, um, who's luckily still my friend to this day because we're in the same band together. And um, he uh, had told me one day, he was like, hey, we're you know, we got to go see this band called Guns N' Roses. And Gosh. I said, I said, where are they at? And they were playing at a famous venue in Baltimore called Hammerjacks that, that oh most East gosh. Coasters will know about. I'm pumped right now. But uh, so I said, uh, I said, Guns N' Roses, that sounds kind of lame. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, well, we played out in L.A. and we warmed up for them. And I'm like, what do you mean you warmed up for them? You have three records out and you warmed up for some band that's not even signed? And he was like, yeah, we had to. They're like, they're like killing L.A. Like we had no choice. It was either warm up for them or go home, you know. And so, I, and I remember driving to the gig and I'm like, Guns N' Roses, that just sounds, 
I don't know, man. He's like, no, they're really good. They're really good. I just the name is killing me. You know, I can't get past the name. And so we, uh, we go into Hammerjacks. There's hardly anybody there. And it was before, uh, it was when Welcome to the Jungle had already been out and people went, oh, there's a new, you know, new hard rock band out of L.A. Yep. called Guns N' Roses. And it was on MTV a little bit. But Sweet Child of Mine hadn't hit. Oh, so there, it was in this Netherland where they were doing club dates up the East Coast and across, you know, uh, the northern part of America and then down through the swamp states. And um, so I remember just going into the venue and there was like, you know, it wasn't even half full. And I'm used to going there seeing, you know, kicks or, or even Skid Row at the time was uh, oh, uh, damn. was just selling out the place. And they Sebastian were, Avenue. Oh, yeah, now. yeah. Uh, I've, we've played some shows with Sebastian. He's, he's a special guy. Um, the uh, But anyway, so we, we saw them, and uh, it, it just so happens that that particular night, Izzy Stradlin got so drunk that his guitar player, uh, sorry, his guitar roadie unplugged his guitar because he was just, you know, leaning out over the what <laughs> crowd there was and sort of just falling over and his guitar was just wide open feeding back. And so they finally unplugged him and Slash like covered the whole show and it was amazing. <laughs> and uh, Slash just killed. I mean, he's a, still a great guitar player to this day. But I remember um, going around the, the, the side of the building with Ronnie and as it turns out, Steve... And um, Steve and Brian, two other guys from Kicks, they came to the show separately. So I was with Ronnie, and I remember coming around the side of the building, and Axel came out and was sitting there talking, standing there talking to Steve and Brian. And Ronnie and I walked up, and Axel wasn't wearing a shirt. He was wearing, like, blue leather pants. Yep. And I was looking at his tattoos, and I was like, I was like, man, those tattoos look fake because <laughs> they were so vivid, yeah. you know. And I was like, those aren't I always real. They, I always thought they had like photoshopped them too. Like, they, they were so. I mean, I stood this close to them, and I was like, that ain't a real tattoo. That's like magic markers or some shit, you know. And uh, and of course they're not. But I was just and and he was re- he was super nice. He was like. He was like, man, I don't know, playing this East Coast, it's kind of like playing a wasteland. Like, nobody comes to our gigs. You know, because they're used to killing it out in L.A. Yeah. And the places are going bonkers. And, you know, people are still kind of scratching their head at the time before Sweet Child hit. And um, so uh, so I got to see him there. And then they played two weeks later at a place called The Bayou in D.C. And, um, again, there was, there was just not that many people there. And it was... Uh, but that was the last. Then the very next time I saw them warming up for Aerosmith at a at, a, <laughs> at an arena, which yeah. was maybe three or four months later, and um uh and it was that was the tour where Aerosmith had just gotten sober and they were trying to keep the Guns guys and the Aerosmith guys separate because yeah. they didn't want you know Joe Perry and Steven Tyler sneaking into the Guns guys dressing room and and stealing all their liquor and doing all their coke or whatever was going on <laughs> back then. But that was, uh, but Damn. it was a, it was a stark uh, how thing. Was, how was Axel live at that? Fantastic, really? I mean, oh, fantastic! I, I always mean, he, wondered, like, how many of those notes? No, he, he sang his ass off, and and he and there was a time. I'm sure we've all seen the videos where, um, you know, po- uh, pre-Chinese democracy, where there was just a a, a turnstile of band members and Guns and Roses, yeah. and Axel wasn't singing all that great. He wasn't taking care of himself. And then when I heard that they were that he was going to do the ACDC thing, I yep. was like, this is either going to be the greatest train wreck in rock and roll history 
or it's going to be killer. And, and I watched the videos, and he murdered that ACDC stuff. I mean, it was a stu- have you Have you seen the videos? I have not. Oh, my God. It, it was just, to, it, I couldn't believe that he was that amazing. He was every bit as amazing doing that ACDC stuff as he was the very first time I saw him in a club. That's awesome. Yeah, it was it was astonishing, and and hats off to him because he could have, you know, he he and I heard a uh, it was either an interview or an article where he said he's like, man, I'm not gonna, you know, go be an ACDC and suck at it. You know, I'm gonna make sure that I kill it. You know, and he sure did. It was. It's cool that he knew his range well enough to know he could do it. Yeah, because he had to cover Bond and and uh, Brian Johnson, so two different, you know, stylistically different singers, and he just murdered it. It was so good, I couldn't believe it. I thought for sure, I was like, I can't wait for the, you know, how many people are going to jump on him and put their thumbs in his back and say, you know, you should have never taken that gig because I thought for sure it was going to be a disaster. You know, I think of like when I think of. Sweet child of mine, all I can think about was sitting in front of my TV and I had like this big, like three foot Casio record player cassette tape tuner type thing would have the radio on and I had a cassette tape in there, like brand new one ready to record and then MTV was in front of me. I had the VHS tape in ready to record and I'm just trying to wait for either because they would milk you oh, for yeah. two hours. Yeah. Like, coming up. Coming up. Guns, Guns and Roses. Roses. Yeah. Child of mine. I'd be uh-huh. like, oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. And, you know, you wanted to record soon enough to where you wouldn't get all those, like, weird lines and crap, mm-hmm. like, at the beginning of your VHS recording. So right. I was just sitting there. Right. Timelessly just waiting for all these, like, shitty songs to yeah. play. <laughs> <laughs> from like um downtown julie brown oh yeah who was the mtv news dude with like the long blonde hair um god what was his name kirk uh kirk <laughs> yeah. kirk loader uh, yeah kurt loader right. kurt loader yeah <laughs> uh and then You're there right. was um um what's his name god i can't remember uh adam curry was the big hair guy and he's mm-hmm. been he's like been doing podcasts longer than um Adam Carolla, like he was like the king of podcasts. He's been yeah. doing it like twenty years almost, and because uh, he was on Rogan not too long ago, and I listened to him, and he was talking about the heyday of. Uh, and we played a gig in uh, the Dominican Republic last year called Eighties in the Sand," and they had all these '80s people there, and we were just one of them. And so Debbie Gibson was there, <laughs> yes, and downtown Julie Brown was there. And she looked terrific. She's taking care of herself. She looks great. I heard that from someone. And she's just talkative and friendly and just, you know, signing autographs for everybody. I mean, nice to everybody. And she she just looked fantastic. I was was shocked. I mean, you know, you think for sure after a certain amount of time, somebody would hit the wall and it fall on them, right? There's a slight chance we will not talk archery at all. (laughs) 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 So um, when was the first time you got your first real like like heavy metal hard rocker like stage costume so to speak oh man um i think that um i first started playing gigs in uh because you had to be 18 to play in the bars around where we lived so you know most of us snuck in a little early but um um and i think that uh 
you used to what we used to do was order at the time the, the thing to wear was spandex right so <laughs> we wouldn't be caught dead in that stuff nowadays but you could order it out of the back of like cream magazine or hit parader yeah and you would just you know send your check in and send your size in and you would get it and and you know you just kind of like build your outfit from there you know and yeah. usually it was like you know what's uh what's axel wearing this week you know so we'd go go get cowboy boots and tuck our leather pants into our <laughs> cowboy boots and then and then when bon jovi came out it was the fringe leather jacket with the conchos oh, you know yeah. we that all had one. we all had those you know yeah, and I actually so, stole my sister's. It was white. I had a white one and a black one. And the white one was, I got a bunch of shit for wearing the white one out. But uh, So I didn't wear that too long. But, um, how but many, yeah, that How was, much of like, if you're, because Axel set the precedence for this. That whole band did, that look. This new Dudley story that Caleb hasn't heard yet. But mm -hmm. um, So Axel had some pretty rocking leather pants, mm -hmm. like lace-up leather pants. Mm -hmm. Are those costumes totally built by the record labels for them to where they're like a character? No, I think that um, th those guys were wearing that stuff. Uh, so there was a, they were wearing that stuff before they got signed. I mean, they had that look. If you look at photos of them before they got signed and before, you know, Geffen got a hold of them, they mm -hmm. were, they, they were not a, uh, a, a record company constructed band their yeah. look you know their songs were their own they didn't have any outside writers um they had a great producer mike clink that that really made that record sound you know the way it the mm -hmm. way it does i mean just it's a it's a great sounding record to this day but I they i have the original appetite i have the original album vinyl with the with the, the band one. Oh yeah yeah that's the i don't have that one yeah that one's good i'll show it to yeah, you yeah, yeah 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 that's the one to have yeah yeah but they I had that T-shirt on a on a Levi's jean jacket. You sewed it on the back. Oh yeah. Oh nice. Like imagine a sixth grader walking mm -hmm. around with that scene on his back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just you'd look at him and be like, "Where's his mom and daddy at?" <laughs> you know, and the the other thing is, is those guys could could get well. We all could. We all went to New York and went to the Village, and there were clothing stores all in the Village where you could just buy. You know, cowboy boots or beetle boots, if you wanted that look. Uh, you know, flare, flare jeans, uh, uh, stitched up leather pants. You know, mm -hmm. with the with the ties in the front and the back and stuff. And you could get you could get that stuff if you bothered to make the trip to New York. It was a little more difficult to get uh, in places like D.C. But in L.A., they had the same thing. I mean, they have you know boutiques and people that were making custom clothing back then. Um, I remember there was one girl that made some stuff for me that had made stuff for uh, John Bon Jovi, just some accessories, you know, yeah. like belts and crap like that. And mm -hmm. uh, so you network with these people and you'd get your, you know, whatever you wanted made if you couldn't buy it off the shelf. Or you'd take a leather jacket and then, you know, tear it up and paint it. You know, you could paint it with acrylic and just paint a bunch of, you know, whatever you were into on it or whatever. Sew some Aerosmith patches on it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so so it was kind of like a, you know, I think a, a lot of the bands in the, in the early, early days when Guns N' Roses first hit were were sort of, you know, buying the things that they thought were cool, you know, looking like, you know, Hanoi Rocks was a, was a cool look. A lot of bands copied their look. You know, if you look at Faster Pussycat and you look at Hanoi Rocks, they look pretty similar yeah. at, at the time. And, and um so I think a lot of bands did that, and I think the canned uh, stuff came a little bit later when the record company started seeing the this success of this look and this sound, and they're like, okay, let's bring 10 more bands in here, 
and then you know you guys change your hair um you guys are going to use these guitar players on your record so you sound more like everybody else and it was quite common yeah but after you know after things started to roll in that direction and then uh then of course it all came crashing down the first with the first nirvana record <laughs> yeah freaking kurt well let me just paint a little picture for you you know how now as a parent there's times where you know harry would want certain things which he'll say so and so has this and you look at it and think okay well those are $1,900 boots or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you just think, oh, we can get you something like that. And then you go to Walmart and like find some moon boots or something for five mm-hmm. bucks. So I was kind of in that category where I envisioned myself all, you know, six, three, 125 pounds of me <laughs> in Sebastian Bach or Axel's freaking outfits. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted some freaking sweet leather pants. I wanted some cowboy boots. And I wanted that exact leather jacket you were talking about. Mm -hmm. But instead what I got was some synthetic elephant skin boots that my mom got from a shoe barn at a Kenosha outlet mall. Uh I got a pair of um, charcoal gray leather motorcycle pants riding pants that were like pretty much like a pair of dockers oh my goodness in size like 37 32s they Uh were like a regulars but she's like they're leather pants and they were 30 bucks or whatever Uh but she's just like they're leather pants you keep saying you want leather pants well they didn't fit she had to like pin them to me Uh so i've got these fake elephant skin boots these like pretty much leather docker slash chaps and my sister's white tasseled and concho jacket. <laughs> like walking around with my yellow Walkman just jamming Skid uh-huh. Row or Guns N' Roses, just, uh-huh. you know, trying to, like, find a cigarette that someone hadn't smoked on the ground and just be freaking cool. Right, be cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> We know Sebastian's a big guy. He's almost as tall as you. I think he's like 6'2", six 6'3". Six he's a pretty tall guy. I so, heard his uh, vocals are like, for what he sang in Skid Row, I heard his vocals are just like way above that. He's, uh, last time I saw him, he did pretty well. Um, I've seen. Did he have like an opera background or something? Like, did I he, don't. Did he sing some like, some like pretty, I don't want to say classical, but. I feel like somewhere I heard him sing stuff where the ran- it was like clean, clean singing, mm-hmm. not like behind you know a, gu- a guitar shredding right. and stuff to right. where it was like more screaming. And I don't know where I heard it, but I thought it was like really. I was surprised at like some of the notes he was hitting. Yeah, he can sing. I mean, he really it, it, it's particularly back then. I mean, he was just a he was just a monster singer. I mean, he was great. Um, but uh, you know there was. Again, there was that time period where nobody cared about 80s music and, you know, a lot of people let themselves go. Some people came back, like Axel and Sebastian, who's who's still great to this day, and, and other people didn't. You know, they go out there and they play and they really don't care. Yeah. And it's not it's not good. It's not good for the genre. It's not good for the rest of us who are out there working hard and, and trying to sound good. But, um, you know... 
what, what all we can do is what we do best and try to do it the best we can. And luckily, the best that we can do it is usually very, very good. You know, we're a lot of times when we play, we'll see all the guys from the other bands we're playing with are on both sides of the stage watching us play, which is a tremendous compliment. You know, you look yeah. over and you see Tom Kiefer from Cinderella or, uh, you know, Kip Winger will be <laughs> yeah. standing over there or somebody and uh, or the guys from Night Ranger. Jesus, are, the names keep coming. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Night Ranger guys are my favorite. They're so funny. For some reason, um, every time I see Brad Gillis, he thinks I'm the pot guy in kicks, right? <laughs> so he's like, every time I see him, and he's like, hey, you got, you know, like, you getting weed? I'm like, Brad, I don't, I don't smoke weed. And he knows this, right? Yeah. But yet, I'm the most hippie-looking guy in kicks that might have access to some weed. <laughs> and so every time, I, there was one time we were playing in North Dakota, I'll never forget it. And Brad has the best Aussie stories, by the way. If you ever get, if you ever get anybody out there, you ever get Brad by himself, ask him about his Aussie stories. They will have you on the floor peeing yourself. It's so funny. So we were in North Dakota one time, and uh, we both happened to be down the same hallway. And uh, our rooms were right next to each other, so it was like, you know, like the, the uh, Beatles when they all walked into the same thing. I unlocked my, you know, shut my door. Hey, Brad, see you later, you know. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, Knock, 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 knock. I was like, who's knocking on my door in the middle of the night? I open it up, and it's Brad. And he goes, hey, man, you know where I can get any pot? <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> Brad, I hate to put you on the spot if you're listening, buddy, but, uh, you know, hey, weed's legal in California. Brad lives in California. Illinois, so. like, yeah. this goes on and on right now. Yeah. You know what was funny about last night when you were talking about Dio? Mm-hmm. Um, so I went and shot in a world championship in Sweden. And I remember we got there, and me and two of my other buddies, um, we actually decided to skip official practice just because official practice was kind of, like, flat and boring. And, you know, this is field archery, and we knew the terrain would be kind of severe and mm -hmm. serious. So we had got some um, some information that there was a really cool local field course that was about 45 minutes away that was like challenging. So we just said, Hey, what if we, the three of us, let's freaking ditch out on this and let's go hit that field course mm -hmm. and like train hard, you know? And so we left and we ended up pulling into a gas station and the only, for whatever reason, the only thing in there that like stuck out is like, you need this was a D there was a Dio greatest hits CD. Oh. It was like, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Sweden. Yeah. I mean, Oh, that's cool. And so we bought this thing uh -huh. and in this, you know, smart car or whatever we had rented, we were just jamming freaking Dio's greatest hits for Eight full days, and I think the reason the reason why is because we were trying to find music on the radio, and uh -huh. it was all just Swedish talking and like morning shows or and Swedish death metal. Yeah, which can be good. Yes, can be good. Yeah, um, can be good. The Mongolians pretty legit right now, uh -huh. right? Have you heard that? I have. I have heard of it. I have not actually Dude, heard it. It's it's good uh -huh. yeah you should you should get after it yeah i'll check it out yeah but sure. we were so that that's why we bought it we were so sick of like every channel was just <laughs> someone 
you know, talking in a language we didn't know, but no music. It was just like uh-huh. morning talk shows, morning talk shows, morning talk shows. So then that was the only band or anything that we recognized was that mm-hmm. cover. And then just that thing sat in there and was on repeat for eight freaking days. And I remember like going to get it out when we parked the car to fly home. And uh, two of the three of us had meddled. And I remember like going to the event the morning of the metal matches and we were just freaking, you know, rocking out, uh-huh. you know, and we're, and we're just like, <laughs> I'm like, we're in the metal baby. And like, you know, me and me and my teammate were fist pumping. Like, you know, we were listening to this metal on the way to the metal matches. Uh-huh. And then when we got to the, to where we turned in the rental car, I like went to pull it out and he's like, it has to stay with this car. Someone has to experience oh, the uh, Dio. So we pass along the gift. Yeah, we just like we just left Dio in the smart car and we just we parted ways. Oh, he, that's he so did great. It, he did his job. He did his job. That's yeah. cool, man. What a great story. Yeah, it was fun. That's great. Yeah, it's funny the effect that um, you know when you're in a in a space with certain people, the effect that music can have on on your vibe with those people you know mm-hmm. if you're just sitting around you know some, the, just the music tends to steamroll the mood and and sort of help whatever vibe is happening along if it's uh you know if it's something that that both people or whatever group of people are interested in it's i've always found it fascinating how you know m- music can turn the tide of a conversation or of a of a dinner date or of a get together, you know, if someone, yeah, yeah. It just, it can really, and it can also go sour too. If someone puts on, you know, Casey and sunshine band, I think, uh, I think I'll rather skip that. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think if, uh, if I rolled in to like my parents' house with some two live crew rocking, Mm -hmm. might shut things down for a little bit. Yeah. Wouldn't really know how to handle that. Um, All right, well, I'm going to jump into some questions because I made a little post about um, a picture of you. We're, we've been doing some archery lessons, yeah. getting some coaching. Um, so I kind of asked people out there, hopefully there's some archery-related stuff. Otherwise, people might just be asking the question, well, we talked about, I told you the first heavy metal album I got was Slippery When Wet. Mm-hmm. It was a cassette. Mm-hmm. And then you told me about, do you yeah. know how they did the cover? So yeah. Tell that story. Yeah. So a um, good friend of mine, Mark Weiss, who's a, a um, I think every Aussie, every famous Aussie picture you've ever seen is is done by Mark Weiss, and every Van Halen picture you've ever seen is a Mark Weiss photo. And um, Mark's a good friend of mine, and uh, he's, uh, uh, you know, we get together and talk photography. We hardly ever talk rock and roll because we're both photographers. Um, and... So Mark was uh, hired to do the the whole slippery shoot, and they were um, uh, nobody was happy with what they were coming up with, you know, because they would go do the shoot, develop the film, and and nobody liked anything. It was all like you know girls and pictures of John and half naked women, and it was like this is very cliche. Mm-hmm. And so Mark, with his his uh, infinite genius. Um, took a, uh, a black hefty garbage bag and took a took a hose and and you know made a fine spray on it and wrote slippery when wet with his finger either I forget maybe John did it but I'm pretty sure Mark did it and um, wrote slippery with when wet with his finger 
and photoed the wet garbage bag, and that ended up being the cover of the album. Boom. After, Knowledge bombs. After all that junk of, you know, oh, let's get this girl and that girl, and let's shoot John from this side, and should we put the band in there with him, and all, all that other stuff that, that, that Mark told me they went through. <laughs> and then you just pull open a garbage bag, get it wet, write the name of the album, Bam, done. <laughs> Classic forever, right? I love it. Universally recognized album cover, you know. Okay, Sonder P. Derps has a good question. I'm just going newest to unnewest. All right. <laughs> Talk about the infinite parallels within archery and playing an instrument from the basic fundamentals to the super, nerd, super nerdy technical stuff. Well, he's not on the, the nerdy uh, technical stuff yet for archery. So no, not yet. You could probably... Can you combine some parallels right now with what yeah, you learned? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there there are, um, <clears throat> you know, as a as a uh, let's say you're a casual observer and you you know what shooting a bow looks like because you've seen other people do it, right? Mm-hmm. So as a, uh, you know, I was a music teacher for for um, five years, and the the things that you were showing me yesterday um, were I was sort of equating them in my mind with the things that I would show um, a student when they first pick up the guitar. It's like, you know, don't make claw hands, you know. <laughs> you can't you can't play with a claw hand on your left hand and don't be, you know, don't be stiff, be loosey-goosey with your right hand and, and, and the, the sort of parallels there were, you know, lock your, your index finger into your jaw relax your right hand and, and left hand. sorry, left hand, yeah. your forward hand and, um, and, and do those things. And you, you had me do it over and over again with the string. And that became, uh, less about thinking about shooting an arrow and more about thinking of the technique. Yep. And so, and that's the perfect thing that, that, that is equal to teaching somebody to play guitar. You know, don't, don't, think that you can be Jimmy Page and put a wheel on it and then play it down by your knees the first day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You got to sit it on your lap the right way and you can't, you know, you you can't posture first. Right, you can't right, you can't like hunch over the instrument and you just can't expect to excel in a meaningful way at a at a, at a reasonable pace when you're when you have all of these little minor physical things wrong. And so a lot of the things that you showed me yesterday were uh, very detailed and minor physical things, but then when added up all together, and and I, I think I got to the point by the end of the the day working with the the, the string, that uh, the end of the part of working with the string that I felt like I wasn't thinking about each and every detail. It was happening a little bit more uh, in concert, you know. Yep. And it's the same thing with sitting down with a guitar the first time. You know, you don't you don't want to have somebody holding a pick. <laughs> You know, like they're like they're chicken picking or anything. You know, you gotta have you gotta have something to rest your hand on and stuff like that. So that's those are very very parallel thoughts and and uh, and you get parallel results. You know, if you do, uh, you have your everything right on the guitar, it's going to be easier for you to learn back in black. And if you have everything right with, um, you know, the posturing with archery and not thinking about everything from your toes to your head. You're avoiding um, black, and you're in the gold. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you don't want to be black. Back no, that's black. right. That, that's right. But it was, uh, yeah, it was very, uh, it was very parallel, and I, I, I was making note of those, of those details like that, and and it felt, uh, it, it felt good to know because I love the details, you know, and it, so it felt good to me to know that there was, 
you know, much more detailed than I ever thought to just pulling back an arrow and letting lo- letting it loose. And so that made me even more excited about archery just in those, you know, few hours that we spent. I'm like, oh, this is way more detailed than I thought. I love it yeah. even more, you know. Yeah. So. The hard thing with getting a student that is a clean slate and who has never done it is it's probably like if you were to give lessons for someone where they're like, hey, I want to learn guitar and I'm going to come for two days. Mm-hmm you would probably be thinking your fingers are not going to be able to do two days of training. Like you're going to be bloody, you're going to be cramped, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's just, there's certain calluses that have to be built with time, right? Absolutely. Um, So kind of spoiler alert for those listening to the podcast. um, I decided to like work with Mark because this was a brand new slate so this is actually going to be an archery one-on-one, you know, how to learn archery and how um, pretty much how to, how to teach archery if you're trying to teach archery to, you know, someone in your family or a close friend or whatever. So we've kind of done a very unstructured, um, just a kind of a full continual film of me teaching you the very first thing mm-hmm. that I talked to someone about of, okay, we're going to start shooting archery. Here's the first thing. And we've worked for a day. And I think at this point you've probably shot 10 arrows out of the bow. We've made some adjustments, which tonight will, you know, hopefully start adding to that repetition repetition. And then tomorrow mm-hmm. I think we'll complete that. And at that point, I feel like you're going to be, you're going to be able to go out on your own and start to build some calluses, whether they're on the right path or not, but they're, they're going to be calluses built Mm -hmm. in a certain direction. And then from there, we'll be able to like follow up with that. Um, So this is actually a really cool series, but right now I would say you're 35% like in, Mm -hmm. you know, probably do you think that's fair? Cause I, I think we really need to get, um, the next step is you pulling your own bow back and making shots um, through your own bow and then obviously like getting you sighted in to where you can aim at a certain size target. You know, okay. Right now we've you've learned basics, you've learned fundamentals, you've learned the release, you've shot with a shot trainer, um, you watch me build your bow to your size, your bow's mm-hmm. pretty much ready. And then we've kind of shot with the bow, set it really low poundage for, you know, a few shots, take a break, a few shots, take a break. And then, you know, now we're going to continue to build on that. So mm-hmm. this will be a cool series. I've been wanting to do it for a long time, but I really wanted the right person too. And, you know, once we met and we started talking, I just realized you were like, you're very articulate. You know, I think, you. Well, thank you. You know, I think, I think, you know, process, even when you talk to me about, you know, you bought a Traeger and you grilled and, you know, you talk about all that little stuff. I just realized like, okay, he's, he's going to be cool with learning technique and like mm-hmm. going through the process, which I know for you, it's probably a little bit frustrating because you're like, Hey man, I really want to learn. And I'm like, <laughs> I know, like I got to get through hunting season. I got to get through holidays. Yeah, and then, yeah. like I'm going into where I'm going to be doing builds and I want to get you here. And I like, I don't want to just send you a bow and let right. you watch the videos. I want like, 
I want to teach you and document it to where other people will be able to learn from this, of this like totally clean slate. So I'm looking forward to it. I think. Yeah, I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you so much for for choosing me. I'm I'm so grateful. (laughs) So grateful. No problem. Okay, this question kind of ties into um, the the tail end of that first question about you know about the super nerdy stuff. And I said in archery, you like you're not to that level um, yet to answer. But there is someone that asked a question on the base side, which I think could be more of a high technical question that I think you could answer. And that is how to properly slap a base. He said, I can't get it to sound right. Um, well, it's a, it, uh, I, th- I think um, probably the best thing to do is to, uh, it's, it's hard to describe. So I'll say, what I can say is that there are a, a lot of great YouTube videos, and I, I will describe it, but there are a lot of great YouTube videos that break it down. And the th- I, think the th- I think the thing that most new slap bass players lose is that you're really, you're really not playing um, a, a melodic bass. You're playing a percussive instrument at that point. Okay. So you're, you're slapping the, the uh, one string with your thumb and you're pulling up with the, uh, you know, just the same way we make. Yeah. Right. The so same hand position. It's the same hand position as holding a release. Okay, right. Nice. It's exactly the same. So you're kind of going, I, I mean, I know nobody can see this when, when we're doing Pretend a podcast. Pretend like you're holding a knock to it or silver back. Right. And then you put it against the base and then you slap your thumb against the E string and then hold the uh, octave E note on the D string and then pull that note. So you're popping the string. So you're pulling the string away from the fretboard and the, the string hitting the fretboard as you release it is actually the thing that makes the slap bass sound. So you're slapping it with the thumb, popping it with your finger, and you go slap, pop, slap, pop. So you go boop, da, boop, da, boop, da, boop, da. And you're actually playing, you're playing the drums at that point. You're playing a percussive instrument. Oh, that's you know? cool. Think about the, we were talking about Chili Peppers earlier. Oh, um, yeah. What's the Stevie Wonder song that they... Um, Higher ground. Oh yeah. So the begin of the bass intro to higher ground. Yeah. Boom, da, da, boom, da, boom, da, boom, da, da, boom, da, boom, da. That's oh, yeah. all. That's all this on two on two strings moving up. It's a pretty easy slap bass part. Of course, I don't want to minimize anything that Flea does. Yeah. But, but that's one of the Super easier. Super awesome in Yeah. Oh yeah. He's incredible. Incredible. But um, there's uh, it, it's it's really you know you're turning your bass into a percussive instrument at that point. So it, it helps to learn. Um, uh, slap bass by thinking about it as like maybe you're playing drums okay instead of playing bass i like it i like it uh craziest thing to be thrown on stage during a show oh <laughs> man this is uh might have to put an e did, with this thing right we <laughs> this is now going r-rated um let's see um craziest thing um I have seen, of course, underwear. Um, I've seen people throw. Um, uh, <laughs> man, I'm trying to. Ma- I'm really trying to make this uh, I don't not not R rated here, John. <laughs> I don't want to ruin your show. Um, Talk category, maybe. That uh, cat. Well, you know, um, clothing. You know, women like to throw their clothing. I've had uh, and and I've seen um, women hang their underwear on on 
band members' uh, headstocks, um, you know, throwing uh, uh, um, sexual aids on <laughs> on stage. I've seen that a lot. That's always a, a that always gets a good laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen. Uh, uh, Oh God, man, this is so hard to answer. Anything like, <laughs> like strange? Like, has anyone ever thrown like a tomahawk steak? <laughs> uh, no, not any food. Luckily, I think when you get food thrown at you on stage, that's not good. And so uh, I haven't had, I haven't seen um, food thrown at thrown at us on stage. Luckily, um, bras and panties, the usual stuff like that. Um, but I've never seen anything that just absolutely took my breath away you know but i'll tell you one weird thing that that when when um head or anything that really took took that really surprised me one time was i saw somebody uh when ipads started to first get into the everybody's hands i saw people taking photos of us with their ipads at concerts like holding up the ipads and taking photos and like you know blocking people behind them right and uh, so I thought, and, and when I see iPads at concerts this day, I think it's the weirdest thing ever. So that, so to me, that's a weird thing to see from the stage. Um, but as far as uh, people throwing things on stage, I don't have anything that hasn't been said before, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Let me put it that way just to keep it super clean. Um, but, yeah, that's what I would say. All right. Um, let's see. Hardest partier that you've ever had on tour with you? Hardest partier that I've ever seen. Hmm. I would say, um, this is recently. um, (laughs) Good for him. Yeah, I would say that, uh, um, gosh, I don't want to, I don't want to really out anybody, but um, (laughs) I've, I've heard that, uh, uh, Vince Neil is a is a uh, um, is a pretty hard partier. You've these, heard these days. I've heard, <laughs> <laughs> Dang, but he's, he's uh, still after it. Yeah, he's st- he still goes out there and does does the gig, man. But but uh, you know, not, I, I've I've uh, noticed that not much has changed from the from the Motley movie that I can see. Um, but you know, he's, he's he's a pretty nice guy. He's not a bad guy. He's all right. It like, makes you wonder if. Like some of those people are just a sixty-five or seventy-year-old dude from high school that is still talking about, you know, the the touchdown, yeah, the one yeah, touchdown catch. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I think that you know, for some people, that that uh, um, you know, and there's a couple other bands out there that are that are doing the same circuits that we are, and their guys have not, um. You know, they still think it's it's uh, it's 1986. You know, and uh, um, I remember that, that there was this one particular time that um, we were playing the um, we played Choctaw Nation in Oklahoma with White Snake, and um, dang, this was probably five or six years ago. And we did we did like four or five dates with White Snake all around the nations in that area, mm-hmm. and um, and the 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 great thing about playing um, reservations is that they treat you like kings, and they are th- some of the nicest people on the planet. When you come in there, they're so grateful that you're coming to play for their sovereign nation, and mm-hmm. they're they're just like you know anything you want. We, if we don't have something that you need, 
we'll send somebody out to go get it, you mm-hmm. know? And, and, you know, it's just, it's so humbling to play for yeah. the nations because mm-hmm. they're so kind and they're so grateful. Right? Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, wh- one of the, uh, uh, the, the, the woman who was the hospitality of this particular casino was the daughter of the chief of the tribe. Mm-hmm. And so, and she was so nice and they, they had all this beautiful food set up for us and, um, uh, uh, um, White Snake's road manager was an old English guy who hadn't really got past 1986 yet. This <laughs> isn't a reflection on, on the band. It's just this one particular guy, but he had been a road manager or, or TM all his life. Yep. And something wasn't right on the rider that, you know, Mr. Coverdale didn't appreciate or something. Who knows? And he came out and he got in this girl's face. This girl's only like 5'2". And he got in her face and, you know, thick British accent, you know, this this wouldn't happen in England and all this stuff. And she said, uh, she let him have his peace. And then when he was done, you know, firing off, she said, you know what? You and your band can get in your tour bus and you can leave our sovereign nation because we just don't need you here if you're going to act like that. So she was ready to cancel the whole thing yeah. and throw them out on their ear for being rude to her. And I thought that was one of the most awesome things I've ever seen. Good for her. With, you know, of, of, of somebody attached to a band being an asshole yeah. and getting, you know, getting what they, what they deserved, you know. So, I, but I don't think he apologized, but I think she just kind of shook her <laughs> head and said, you know, who is this guy? I'll, yeah. I'll throw them out of here so fast. The, they won't even get their guitars, you know. So, um, but that was, a, th- that was one time where I've seen that somebody was a little bit... Uh, little bit excessive in recent years you know who was the wor- who was the worst band you've ever heard play live uh, am i throwing you under the bus yeah totally um there are uh like what about warrant <laughs> how would they throw down well <laughs> you know warrant is actually uh um they're quite good they have a so Janie lane as you know is dead Yep. Um, rest in peace. He was their songwriter. He's, he was a great singer. And he actually came up and played uh, Cold Blood with us one time at um, the House of Blues in L.A. And I had never really heard him sing up close, but him and Steve were going back and forth on the Cold Blood parts. And I heard him in my ears, and I was like, oh, my God, this guy is a, an absolutely phenomenal singer. Could not believe how good he was because I wasn't a huge Warrant fan. I knew they were good, but it wasn't really my thing. Mm-hmm. And... um. Uh, and they still play great. It's all the original guys except for the singer. And they have a guy named Robert Mason who was in, um, uh, I can't recall. I can't pull the name of the band he was in. But he was he's a fantastic singer. And he, he covers that stuff amazingly well. And they sound great. They play great. And, and Robert does um, all of those Janie songs justice. I mean, he really kills it. And so it's really nice to see that, you know, a band that, that has lost their major creative force. Yeah. And then somebody like Robert comes in and they get to keep playing and keep going. And not only does he just hold the fort down, he's killing it, you know. Yeah. So Warrant is is, is a good example of somebody who is uh his is uh is doing well. So but there are several other guys out there that you know, <laughs> you see them. <laughs> And you're like, what are you doing? You know, you, you just, you can't believe that they're actually getting hired, you know, by uh, talent buyers these days, you know. So, um, but it's, uh, it would be, you know, I don't know. I'd probably find, you know, rat rats in the, in, in my salad if I 
called out too many people. <laughs> so is rat in that salad? No, actually. <laughs> well, so we know the rat story, right? So, so rat was um, uh, Warren D. Martini, the fantastic guitar player. Um, the people that were left, uh, Stephen Piercy, who did, uh, who was actually with our same agent for a long time, and we did a bunch of gigs with Stephen, and he, Stephen's still quite good. Um, and then uh, uh, they had, uh, you know, each band member sort of splintered and tried to start their own version of Rat. And so then um, Stephen Piercy and the bass player, Juan Crucier, I think is how you say his name. Sorry, Juan, if you're listening and I butcher your name they got together and decided they were going to make their own version of Rat and they were going to fire Warren Martini and get a bunch of young kids to come out and play for, you know, a couple hundred bucks a show and they take home the mother load. But the, you, can't, you can't fire the main guitar player. The yeah. other, Robin Crosby died many years ago uh, um, and he's just, you know, obviously can't get him back. Yeah. But Warren wrote all the songs and played all those fantastic guitar solos and they fired him, and they're still out there playing as Rat. But it's it's only two guys, and it's not the main guitar player, which to, for me is like, I mean, I, I just, I, I, I hate that. Cause, what happened to Wasp? Um, <laughs> funny you mentioned Wasp. Yes. So uh, the last time that I saw Wasp, so we play, Kix plays this, uh, this, uh, um, venue every year in Columbia, Maryland called uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's called M3 Festival. It's Friday and Saturday. And they have on Friday nights, they have what they call a kicks off show. And since we're from that area, we can actually put 14,000, 15,000 people in that, in that venue on a Friday night. And so we always headline Friday night. And usually other bands will, who normally we would open for anywhere else, like one time Night Ranger opened up for us there, and they sold way, way, way more records than Kicks. And so, um, so they hired Wasp, and Blackie Lawless said, well, I'm not opening up for no Kicks. We're, we're going to have to play after them. And so we were like, you know, we don't, we don't care. We'll play anytime. You, you want us to be there at 5 o'clock and play in the daytime? we'll be there at five o'clock and we'll give you the best show that, that we're capable of offering. Right. So, um, Blackie said there was no way that he was going to open up for kicks. He had to play last. Mm -hmm. And we were like, okay, you know, this is, this is not going to go well for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, cause we know our fans in that area and we know what happens when, um, when kicks is done playing yep. and exactly what we thought was going to happen. As soon as we finished half of the place emptied out, and then about three or four songs in, they were so bad that most of the rest of the arena emptied out, and and it was just a it was a fiasco for them. I mean, they were they were left over with who couldn't legally drive home yet. Yeah, that that <laughs> or or time. you know the hardcore Wasp guys that just had to see oh, the whole show. Yeah. and of course there was no other original members except for Blackie in the band. Yeah. and you know, for for me, that's that's not. I don't know. It doesn't do it for me, and I never liked that band anyway. So for me, to 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 see that, I was kind of a. I kind of had a good laugh out of it because I was like, eh, you know, you shouldn't have, uh, you shouldn't have insisted that uh, you go last, and you might have played for more people. I you know, know? Yeah. and I don't even think they did any shows after that. I think that was like a, a 
comeback show and it didn't go well and nobody wanted to work with him or something. I don't know. I'm not really sure of those details, but, but it didn't go well. And so that was a, and they weren't very good at all. It was, it was not a, um, it was not a fun thing to, to witness if you were a Wasp fan. <laughs> <laughs> what bass player do you see that's like a mainstream bass player where when you see him, you're like, whoa, that guy is like, I can't do that. From like back in the day or, or well, just any time? actually either one. Well, I'll tell like, you. Let's do past and current. So, well, some guys have had these enormous careers. Okay, you know? well, put, um, them, put them in there. Give there's a guy. Um, I'll give you a couple that, uh, that that have had a great influence on me. Um, Getty Lee from Rush, for one, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I play in a Rush tribute band, and I am the Getty Lee guy in the Rush tribute band. We're called Sundogs. Um, that just started. That started about three years ago. Oh, is it? Yeah, okay. I've been doing it a while. It's a, it's it's a it's a ton of work. I I sing, play keyboards, and play bass, and and uh, it's a true three piece Rush tribute band. So, and we have an actual Canadian in the band too, which gives us a lot more street cred. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um uh so Getty Lee for sure. Uh, ever since e- even before I was playing, um. Uh, playing music like you, like we were talking about the other night, where you said you know the bass always stood out to you. Mm-hmm. For for me, on those early Rush albums, before I even touched a guitar, the bass always stood out for me as well. Um, and then uh, uh, John Entwistle from the Who is another influence. Chris Squire from Yes, um, and then uh, uh, Billy Sheehan came along with uh um with Talis in the early days and then he was in David Lee Roth's band after David Lee Roth left Van Halen and then um just so happens that that he uh joined a band called the Winery Dogs with Richie Kotzen and Mike Portnoy from Dream Theater and they play a bunch of shows that we play we're kind of on the same circuit and so I get to see Billy play a lot and talk to him about bass guitar and he's fantastic nicest guy ever um, and then, uh, there's another guy that, that I recently have really had a lot of admiration for. His name's Dylan Wilson. Um, and he's in Richie Cotton's band and he is such a, such a, a perfect technician with the ultimate feel, you know, and so much so that I was inspired, you know, I asked him, I said, Hey, you know, do you give bass lessons? Can you show me <laughs> a couple things, you know, and I haven't had a bass lesson in, you know, a hundred years, but Dylan was so great. I was like, I was like, dude, you got to teach me how to play more economical like you do. And he was, and so he, so he gave me a couple of bass lessons and I, le- I learned some things from him that That's awesome. actually is affecting my playing now, you know, it's That's actually worked cool. its way into my, into my own technique. And Kip Winger's also another fantastic bass player. I mean, he's just a, a monster bass player. He's that really, really good. That radar for me. Yeah. He's, he's fantastic. I mean, but you know, I, I see him close playing. You know, or I'll be standing behind the amps at at these shows we play with with these bands. That's a whole different world. Yeah, so you get to really sort of, you know, catch who's like like superlative, who's really standing out that you might not hear from the front of house mix because Winger's a sort of a guitar-centric band. But then when you stand behind the amps and you hear um, the drummer and Kip Winger, Rod Rod Morgan Stern, Stern, Steen, Rod Morgan Stern, and Kip Winger, the way that they interact as a bass player and a drummer, mm-hmm. it's it's mind-boggling. It is just it's astonishing, and and so so I really admire Kip quite a bit. He's a a much better bass player than I ever gave him credit for back in the day because the bass wasn't just wasn't mixed very loud on those Winger albums, mm-hmm. you know. So you couldn't 
key yeah. in on it like you could with Rush or some of the other things, the other bands that we talked about, you know. I've had people make comments like in posts of, you know, someone will say like, oh, I, you know, you seem like such a genuine guy. And a few times I've seen people like make a post or DM me about like, hey, I saw you one time and you were a total dink. And normally I'll reach out and be said like, said that hey. to you? Yeah. And I reach out and I be like, hey, man, what's that. up? And two of the times were I saw you in an airport and was trying to get your attention. You wouldn't even like say hi. For everyone out there, if you see me in an airport, I will have headphones on. Mm -hmm. And like Caleb was talking about how he got suckered into buy a, a pair of headphones in an airport. I'll buy a pair of headphones almost every time I'm in an, in an airport. Mm -hmm. Like, because what I told you was true. The things I actually li like, my brain likes hearing a bass in a song and likes hearing. Honestly, a lot of parts of a song where when you play it through a phone or if you play it in your car and you don't have a really good system, you don't hear those elements yeah. of a voice or of the band. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, I'm always noise canceling, like just shutting stuff out because I can't play stuff loud enough in my house to where I can hear what I want to hear. Uh -huh. So when I go on the road, I just like go deaf for a while because uh -huh. I just, you know, I get in this headphone world where I, I, there's like certain songs and stuff that I listen to because mm -hmm. they sound a million times better with good headphones. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. And, and the other thing is, is, you know, I, I travel a lot as well. And as we know, when you're in an airport, you have a, a lot of time <laughs> that you can indulge in listening to music or yep. listening to podcasts or whatever it is that you want to do. And this is hours of uninterrupted self-indulgence yep. with whatever music you're, you're, you're doing at the time and, and nobody can interrupt you. And, and you know, and I've, I've gotten the same thing where people are like, Hey, I tried to get your attention as you came off stage. And sometimes you're just getting ushered through <laughs> a wormhole at, at yeah. shows, you know, from meet and greets to this, to that. And you literally just cannot stop and talk to people. But I, you know, I've never said no to an autograph. I've never said no to a picture unless it's like, you know, the plane door is shutting or, you know what I mean? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I normally go, why? I figure that if somebody really, you know, I have time for people, you know, they just, they just want a moment with yeah. you, you know, yeah. they just want a second and to say, you know, hey, you're great or hey, you're an asshole. You yeah. know, I haven't got the asshole yet. Maybe I will after this podcast, but um, from some of those other bands. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, they just want a moment. And I always have a moment for somebody who, you know, because then when that moment is over, they go on their way. They're happy. I go on my way. I'm happy. And they have their signed picture or their signed record or whatever it is that they wanted. And I always have time for that because I always appreciate that that somebody took the time to listen to something that I created, you know, mm -hmm. or to, or to, to look at my photographs. You know, sometimes I get people come up to me and, you know, oh, I love your, your underwater photos on Instagram. And, um, yeah, you're a legit diver. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I mean, didn't, I don't know diving at all. Uh -huh. You I mean, will soon. Though. Uh, oh gosh. Now <laughs> I'm going underwater. All right. <laughs> well, you want to hunt underwater, right? So yeah. 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 That would be cool. Yeah. I'm definitely, I would definitely like to do the spear fishing thing. Mm -hmm. I think that would be pretty rad, but doing it with oxygen would probably be, I mean, it'd be fun to go down and see some of that stuff in the mm -hmm. right places. Mm -hmm. It just always comes down to time. Like it I is, I feel 
sometimes I feel like a whiner when, honestly, even with you, there's times where you were texting me and I'm like, being a total a-hole right now, not responding, but... I I understand, of all people, you know. <laughs> there's no way for me to tell, to like explain it, yeah. but there's just a lot of fires burning that I don't talk about. Of you have what to I pay do. attention yeah. to them. Yeah. You have to give them your full attention when that fire is burning. Yeah. Otherwise, it comes out less than what your vision is or less than what your idea is, or you ended up not having any input in it and it's all wrong and you can't undo it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I look at bands that like so-and-so or quote unquote retired and then they come back for like, you know, they come back again. I honestly see myself getting to the point where at some point, if I'm going to do some of these things that I want to do, like I would love to invest multi years into jiu-jitsu but i also if i do that like i want to go you know like full dork into it Uh uh-huh you know and i know i know that it's like there's only so many things i can do where i'm all in right and i don't like being part in so same here like if i'm gonna if i'm gonna do fly fishing which is of interest to me honestly i I really want to catch tarpon but I also want to put in adequate time learning to cast and like really kind of getting into like flow states of casting. And oh, I yeah. want to be able to, I want to be able to roll enough through the day where I'm not just trying to rush somewhere and go for an hour. Like right. I, I honestly could, I'm, I'm very obsessive. Like I have a very obsessive and a very addictive personality. Same so i won't get along good with something if I can only like if I like it and I know I like it and then I can't do it then something else that I've committed to is going to totally suffer because I'm going to go all in there so I just feel like there's going to come a point where either I get things organized to where I want them and I take time away to you know to do some writing I really want to write a book I really want to do a cookbook really want to do Mm jujitsu um but I feel like I've got to just say, okay, I'm going to step out. I'm going to like, so I can go all in there to the point where I feel like I can get to a stage where I can just do maintenance Mm -hmm. and then I can come back and like do maintenance. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm the same way. It's not right now, but I feel like with people who hit the road hard, just, you know, as a band, you know, just a time warp of, you know, mm-hmm. you just go through this black hole. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I did it traveling as archery. I can, I can promise you as much as people want to poke at me about, I didn't go to that many tournaments. I mean, people don't realize that just because I didn't go to some of the tournaments they talked about doesn't mean I wasn't at grassroots events growing archery. Right. I mean, I'm showing Mark. I'm showing yeah. Mark my, my my mileage right now. Oh, and well. I'll guarantee you there's, there is not very many people that have put that much like road miles on. Mm-hmm. And there just comes a point where you do start to feel burned out with it. And either you pick a slightly different direction to still be within the, the field, but alter your, I don't know, you're kind of just altering 
your interest, but right. within the same realm and working with people like you or having, you know, talking to someone about a podcast where it's not still like, Hey, tell me how much I should cut on this arrow or, you know, should I go with 150 grain point or a hundred grain point? Like mm-hmm. some of me likes going back to someone who has a really cool background and the conversation's interesting, mm-hmm. but also a totally clean slate to where, I kind of go back and relearn stuff that I've kind of, Oh yeah. I don't know if it's like, if you went and started just teaching guitar again, mm-hmm. you would probably go back and be like, Oh, I remember like, yeah. I remember I used to do it like this. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like it makes me better on the top end. Right. You know? Because you're going through the fundamentals again mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, showing somebody. And then, you know, when you're teaching somebody, you, you can't teach them 80%. You have to be a hundred percent. And, and, and like you, I'm a hundred percenter. I'm not, and I, I hate people that are 80%. I don't want to say hate people, but when I see people that are 80 percenters, I sort of walk, walk the other way. You know, it's like, I, I'm, I'm, I enjoy being around people that are, that are a hundred percent dedicated to whatever they're doing. And, you know, and I have time for archery now. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm all in, I'm a hundred percenter, which is why, you know, which is why I'm here. And, um, and, and of course, because of your generosity as well, but, um, I wouldn't be here if I was only thinking 70%, Yeah, you know, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't waste your time, you know? And yeah, so, that's cool. but I, but I like being around people that are, you know, cause you do several things and, you know, I do jujitsu and photography and music and, and each one of those things I put 150% into because otherwise what's the point? Just go home. Yeah. You know, why, why bother? Why would you just, why would you do jujitsu 50%? Yeah. You know, go, cause there are people that go to our gym you can. and you they come like broken. once a week I'll speak or once experience. every two weeks. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that picture. I was like, why did he let him choke? Him? Which one? The x-ray? The, uh, no, I didn't see the x-ray. I saw, I think it was Andy, Andy oh, yeah. Stump. That one wasn't bad. With Nothing the rear naked choke. One. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, why did he let him choke? I would never let that guy get behind me. That's too scary. <laughs> well, I didn't really <laughs> want him to get behind me anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, I think the first time we rolled was at Jocko's, and Andy and I were going, but I think I had a little more wrestling background, and he had more, like, settling uh, disagreances in the SEAL community type oh, of background. So I was just like, going through what I knew of wrestling and doing a pretty good job of like reversing and getting out of trouble. And, and it got to the point where there was a few things happening where I don't think Andy totally knew, but both of us had never done jujitsu at all. Uh And then it just kind of got like where it was going like faster and faster and faster. (laughs) And then I could kind of see Jocko going like, he was like, someone's going to get jacked up. Like, right. he was wanting to see that, but uh-huh. then he's also like, oh, damn, these guys got to skydive tomorrow. Oh, like, so he's just like, hold up. You guys are getting ready to do something get hurt, stupid. Right. Um, but then I think after that, Andy went and found a gym, uh, mm-hmm. SBG, uh, which is an, a remarkable gym, and he went all in and, and kind of did that entry-level program and stuff. And then the next time – he, he was telling me like how much he loved it and everything. And by then he was six months in. So he's, you know, we actually did this thing where we were at Mark Twites, me, him and Trevor Thompson. And we did this, this like CrossFit circuit workout. And then 
I was pretty gassed. And, and then Andy's like, well, let's just do free roll for, you know, whatever. And I'm just like, all right, you know, I'm not going to say no, but mm-hmm. I honestly didn't feel like it. Uh-huh. And what he wanted to do was like, <laughs> show me like, here's what three months changes, dude. And uh-huh. so, yeah, it was pretty fast where he was just freaking choking me out. And I'm like, just do it. Uh-huh. Just like, do it. Just I know. Tap, tap, I know, tap, tap, tap. Yeah. I know you've hit a new gear and I'm like, I'm still a, a two cylinder just puts uh-huh. along here. So, uh-huh. um, but there's two things I wanted to talk to you about. One, I really think, um, your purpose for getting into archery and bow hunting. Mm-hmm. I think that that story, which I did not know before you came here, this is actually mm-hmm. stuff we've, I think we've talked about pretty well during this little video series that, that we're filming. Um, but you have such a cool reason of why you want to to learn archery and learn bow hunting, and and that all kind of started from um, you starting to cook on a Traeger. So can you like cover? Yeah, sure. So um, so I had uh, um, I had not eaten red meat since 1994 until um, I think it was January of 2019, and uh, that was when I n- knew that I was getting a Traeger. And um, I had thought about um, um, doing, uh, I had done a keto diet and I thought about doing carnivore. And I thought, well, if I do carnivore and I'm only eating, you know, uh, um, turkey and, and pork and, and chicken, that's not a really diverse diet. And I thought, you know, I should just try um, red meat again. And the reason, the reason I got, it's so funny that you're from Fayetteville and Fayetteville is the reason. Yeah that I stopped eating red meat. Fayetteville, North Carolina. Yeah, Fayetteville, North Carolina. And I had gotten sick for, I had gotten food poisoning for the third time one summer when I was on the road in 94 uh, from um, uh, eating a chicken fried steak for breakfast somewhere (laughs) in in Fayetteville. And I just got sicker and sicker as I got home. And I was sick for like a week. And I was like, that's it. I'm not eating red meat anymore. Because it kind of grossed me out after that. Chicken's not red meat though. It was chicken fried steak. Steak. Yeah, yeah. So So it was just fried steak yeah just fried steak yeah just the typical southern staple yeah. you know um <laughs> and uh and so uh i stopped eating red meat because it kind of grossed me out and it just went on and on and i just never really revisited it until um until i started thinking about the health benefits of i started reading about the health benefits of of uh, carnivore diet and i was interested in clarity of mind and and you know, being able to, you know, uh, cognitive functioning, cognitive function. And, and also I was very interested. I've heard, you know, several scientists talk about the, the fact that, you know, that our DNA is made, you know, back when you're a caveman, you might've only made a kill once every three days. And so you would gorge yourself on meat and then maybe just do some gathering in between until you get to the next kill. Mm -hmm. And, in the last hundred years, our, our DNA has not adapted to the diet that, that is out there right now. You know, we didn't have sugar. We didn't have, you know, uh, Pop-Tarts. We didn't have, you know, in, uh, McDonald's or any of these things. And so, so the diet change over the last hundred years has been much more rapid than our DNA can adapt to. Mm-hmm. And so, and I've heard, this is not something that I made up, of course. I'm just repeating things that I've heard before and hopefully not butchering them, but um, you know, I really thought that, um, I was really interested in the cognitive benefit. And so yeah. I thought, all right, well, I'm just going to start, start eating, eating red meat again. And then of course, when I got the Traeger, that became much more 
much more interesting and fulfilling. And then, you know, you can just do so many amazing things with the Traeger. Um, and then um, uh, after, uh, after trying the carnivore diet and, and eating more red meat, I started looking at um, factory farming. Yeah. And it, I wasn't psyched about it. And I didn't, I kind of knew where that stuff came from, like how they process chickens, how they process beef. Cause I actually had an uncle, a great uncle that worked in a, uh, in a slaughterhouse in, uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania. And he was the hammer guy. So the cow would come by, he would swing the sledgehammer carcass pulled out of the way and he'd swing the sledgehammer again, but old school way, you know? Yeah. And so, and even that was kind of horrifying to me as, as a kid, you know? Um, but you know, he had to make a living. So, um, so I, I started thinking about it and I was like, you know what? I think I just, I, I want to know where my food comes from. And I think that it would be a great idea if I could just go get it myself, yep. you know? And, um, uh, I've had a couple friends that, that have sort of gone that way with, uh, um, my guitar player, Brian and kicks, he is in that direction, but he's not willing to hunt. Yeah. Doesn't, he's not interested in it, but he does buy from, um, you know, uh, he's not buying from like a farm to table type type thing. You know, he's getting, you know, grass fed beef and he's getting as close to the source of the food that he can. Right. But I just, I feel like, and, uh, and I have a 30 out six and I've, I've shot guns all my life. I'm a gun guy. And I, I thought about it. I thought, well, I could just go get a hunting license in Virginia, take my 30 out six out and just go, you know, 500 yards away from a deer and, and blast it. That would be simple. And I started thinking about, well, so what, what is the ethical part of, of, you know, getting my own meat that is missing from the 30 out six equation? And so for me, I thought that, well, if I'm going to get my own meat, I think that it's not fair to the animal to use a cannon and stand half a mile away and shoot it without even realizing it's in danger. So in, in this may sound silly to some people, but for me, it was in the interest of fairness to this creature that I'm about to harvest and take and use to nourish myself and my family that um, I have to give that creature a fair chance. Yep. So I have to learn how to shoot a bow good enough where I would feel good about taking a 30, 40 yard shot and not having to chase that animal wounded for four miles and downing it in, in one shot, being good enough. So that, that is going to require a tremendous amount of practice, yeah. which I'm willing to put in just to get to that point. And, and also, you know, if I make a mistake stalking or, or, you know, whatever I do that alerts them, they get a chance to run off, then, then I've missed my opportunity. And that would inspire me to become a better bow hunter if for, for you know god forbid i made a bad shot and injured an animal or um was up on an animal and made a mistake and they ran away and i missed the opportunity and so that so those all of those things at once are are sort of motiv- motivating me to you know become a, a really good bow hunter yep. and and be able to get whatever kind of meat that i can that i can get a tag for basically i guess um so, you know, I'll pretty much eat anything at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool. But, well, we, we had, I cooked a venison backstrap for you guys. Spectacular. And I, I was shocked. <laughs> I, that was so good. And we were, everybody was talking. I didn't really get a chance to 
pull you aside and tell you how magnificent that was. But That's awesome. But uh, it was, uh, wow. I mean, I never had anything like that before. Well, what's cool is you're going into it with the right mentality of you know you want to work for it mm -hmm. because what we're doing now is like me giving you some guitar lessons. Mm -hmm. And let's just say you get to the point where, you know, I give you a playbook and you come back and you can just play every song in that book. Well, then – that's you learning how to shoot a bow. Mm -hmm. So then you have to learn to be a bow hunter. And then all of a sudden that's me like, now you're able to play on stage. This is what it's like to go on tour. Right. And then. Don't go out there and suck. <laughs> yeah. There's just all these other things of like, you know, how do I get to the venue? <laughs> you know? Right. You know? Where do I get a tag from? Yeah, where, I really don't where know do these things. Where do I get things. dressed? You yeah. Know? Am I going out too early? Am I going out too late? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. just there's so many things like that. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk with you about is one of the cool things about archery that not everyone experiences, but I certainly do, and a big reason why I'm drawn to it, and something that, there's certain times of year where I really thrive to try to find this because when I find it, I, it, it allows me to like understand that I'm still doing things right. And I'm still kind of who I am. And what I'm referring to is like those days where you get into a flow state and I just feel like I can shoot to where I'm, I'm experiencing something that's happening and I know it's better than what I expect from myself. And I mm -hmm. know that, you know, it's like a fog, but then in the end, when you look at the paper, you realize like, dang, there's just not that many people that do that, mm -hmm. you know? So are there still times now where when you play, you get into a flow state where, you know, you just, you feel like just everything was right, but you really weren't consciously there. Does that make yeah, sense? I know exactly what you mean. Um, so the, the rush tribute band I play in sun dogs, you know, rush is, is incredibly, uh, difficult music to perform. And it's, it's difficult to sit on the edge of your bed and play, let alone get up in front of a bunch of people and play it. The arrangements are mind bending. The time signatures are, are sometimes, um, things that you can't think your way through. You just have to feel it. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes I'll, I'll be up there playing and have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And like not, I'm not actually steering the bicycle. You know, I'm yeah. not actually, you know, thinking about every note I'm playing and singing and stepping on keyboard parts and whatnot. And then I'll go see the video the next day and it, it will be, you know, it was not terrible, you know, because I always expected to to just be awful because I'm an artist and, you know, you always think everything you do is terrible until someone else tells you it's good, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I, I watched the video the next day and, and you know, I'll, I'll watch it with my girlfriend and, and she'll say, wow, that was, you know, you were really good. And I'm like, that is actually really good. But I have no recollection of that, you know, like I don't yeah, remember I yeah, don't remember it. that. And so that's, that's what I think the yeah. flow state is. Yeah, that's you the know? spot. And, and while it was happening, you feel like you're just 
sort of moving through space in sort of like a, a, a Tai Chi kind of way mm-hmm. where, yep. you know, the instrument is in your hand. And I have this one um, particular um, bass that is just my favorite bass. I feel like it's a, a 77 Rickenbacker 4001, and it is, when I put it in my hands, I feel it, uh, invincible. <laughs> like, I don't have to think about it. It just is like, it's like scooping butter out of a butter tray, you know. It's just a beautiful instrument. It sounds great. And it fits my hands perfectly. It fits my body right. And I can stand in front of a microphone with that instrument and never even think that I'm playing bass, you know, with particularly playing those Rush songs because we rehearse so often. But, but yeah, I'm, I mean, it, it, there's, there's, there's more of that so with, with uh, playing Sundogs because it's so, so much more difficult and it requires you not to pause and, and look at the details. Otherwise, you're going to train wreck the whole the whole rush presentation that we do. Um, and then, you know, with kicks, I've been playing those songs since 2003 and we, we alternate the set lists a lot. We try not to be one of those, you know, we're called uh, heritage act these days. And, um, I, we try not to be one of those acts that does the same set list every single time they play a club. So we actually keep our set list from the last time we played the venue and we'll change it up to make sure that, you know, if those same fans come out and see us, they're going to get a different show. Mm-hmm. And we feel like that's important to it is to maintain the fan base. But but I I, I, I get that flow state a little bit in kicks. But for, for me, the those the, the songs are easier. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't have to um, I don't have to work quite as hard. Yeah. And since it's more of a lighthearted, you know, party rock band, you know, ACDC Aerosmith type band. Yeah. That I can have goofy moments with the other guys on stage and really enjoy performing with, you know, with, you know, something with Brian or with Steve or Steve almost clocks me in the head with a mic or I'll go back and stand and make faces with Jimmy. But, you know, playing, presenting rush music, you can't, you can't possibly (laughs) do that. I mean, it'll just go off the rails. And so, so I think the, the, that with kicks, it's probably a different kind of flow state. Yeah. Because I don't remember doing any of that stuff as well. And yeah. while I'm making faces at Jimmy, I'm certainly not thinking about the, the notes that I'm playing because they just happen, you know, because yeah. I've been playing them so long. But um, I think there's a difference between subconscious state and flow state. You think so? Yeah. And I mean, when I'm thinking of what you're saying with kicks, that's mm-hmm. just you've done it so much to where you can play it without necessarily thinking about it. But yeah. I'm talking when you play at a level that's above what you think you can do oh, yeah. to where th- things okay. are happening to where you're like, holy crap, it's going just like, you know, definitely with the rush tribute band. It's yeah. It's like the first time I was on high my, level play, you know, I didn't have like, you know, training wheels and I'm like pedaling my bike <laughs> and I'm just like going. And I just remember like, you know, watching my legs going and, and then, you know, fast forward to the time where I'm, I'm going and like picked my arms up off my handlebars for the first time. And I'm just going, it's just like, Oh, I did not know this was possible, uh-huh. but I'm just going to keep going until I freaking face plant. <laughs> so that's really cool. That's really cool. Well, dude, we've got to go do some shooting. Yeah, this let's was do it. super awesome. Really looked forward to it. I enjoyed the hell of it. Thanks I look for having forward me, to shooting John. later, but i I've been looking forward to podcasting because I had to hear some of the stories. So that's. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me to do this. This It's great. I love doing, uh, (laughs) I love talking to really smart people and you're really smart. And I had such a great time, man. This is, uh, 
uh, uh, wonderful. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem, dude. Knock on everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.